Welcome to Hematopoiesis, an ASH trainee podcast made by trainees for trainees. My name is Becky Zahn. And I am Nina Balanchivati. We are so excited to have you join us in this three-part series, Women in Hematology. In this series, we will talk with leaders, Dr. Nancy Berliner, Dr. Ariella Marshall, and Dr. Nana Hamad. Together, we will explore what it means to be a woman in hematology, focusing on concepts such as challenges faced by female physicians, mentorship and career development, and intersectionality. Welcome to Hematopoiesis, an ASH Trainee Council production. We are here today for the second episode in our series, Women in Hematology. My name is Becky Zahn, and I'm a member of the ASH Trainee Council and a second-year fellow at the Dana-Farber Mass General Brigham Hemonc program. And today we are so lucky to be joined by Dr. Ariella Marshall. Dr. Marshall is the director of the Women's Thrombosis and Hemostasis program at Penn Medicine. She is very active in the American Society of Hematology and is the co-chair of the Women in Hematology group along with Dr. Dunn and also a faculty member of the Ash Medical Educators Institute. And we are so excited to have her here today. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. So as many of you know, this is a series that we're putting on talking with amazing individuals in hematology. And so I think I just wanted to start by asking you, Dr. Marshall, how did you get involved in hematology and talk to us a little bit about your career? Yeah, absolutely. So the big thing that got me into the field of hemonc in general was actually a fantastic mentor I had all the way back in college when I was, you know, thinking about going into the sciences and trying to see, did I want to go into clinical practice? Did I want to go into the lab? And I had an amazing mentor who was an oncologist at Mass General Hospital, and he let me do some clinical research with him and also shadow. And that got me into the field of hematology oncology. So all throughout college, medical school and beyond, that's what I knew I wanted to do. And I have always had an interest in women's health. And so I thought the natural fit for me would probably be breast cancer. And that's kind of what I planned when I first came to fellowship. But I never really had exposure to non-malignant hematology much as a resident. And so one of my first rotations as a fellow was the inpatient heme consult service. And I really liked the intensity of kind of the inpatient decision-making about clotting and bleeding and how do you manage you know, these conditions that are complex and don't always have a right answer. And so I decided to switch from breast cancer to benign hematology and focus on thrombosis and hemostasis. And then I've luckily been able to find a niche for myself treating women with clotting and bleeding conditions. So that's a little bit about kind of the evolution of my career over time. That's awesome. And I think hearing, you know, mentors are obviously so important. And then also just that flexibility to change from what you might have originally thought. And then you have this different exposure. And I think you mentioned that you found this kind of niche within hematology. And now, you know, you're the director of the Women's Thrombosis and Hemostasis Center. And I think if you could just expand a little bit on that and what it's been like kind of being in the center and starting the center, it would be awesome, I think, for us to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So 
One of my biggest things in terms of women's health advocacy in general is that women are often not understood by their physicians in terms of their unique healthcare needs. And that really goes for women with clotting and bleeding disorders who are experiencing things like heavy menstrual periods or having to go through pregnancy either with a bleeding disorder or with management of anticoagulation. And so you really need a big team that's focused not just on the medicine, but the patient's kind of emotional needs as well. And you really need that team to collaborate and communicate well. There have been some studies of women, particularly with bleeding disorders, that find one of their top issues is that their providers maybe aren't aware of the specific things that they're suffering from in terms of women's health, and also that their providers really aren't equipped to communicate with one another. So in building the Center for Women's Hematology at Penn, I'm really trying to work in a multidisciplinary fashion with colleagues in maternal fetal medicine and other OB-related specialties specialties and also reach out to women's cardiovascular specialists and the transgender programs, really trying to optimize the experience for patients who have very unique conditions and because of that have very unique needs at specific times in their lives. Yeah, that's amazing. I think we are starting to hear more and more about how people present and describe things differently. And I know that's definitely been something that I've seen in my hematology training as well. And as you've kind of gone into this role, are there things that have surprised you or things that you wish you knew more as you were kind of starting this center and also finding your your niche? Yeah, I think it's you know, the power of collaboration because everybody's trying to do the best by their patient. Everybody has a set of guidelines from their specialty societies that they're trying to follow. Everybody has a process in their own area, but getting people to talk to one another is where I think we really have a lot of work to do, but really have the potential to improve patient care. So if I can get, you know, somebody who's an MFM to refer their patient to me and I can say, hey, from the hematologic standpoint here, how we can best manage a safe pregnancy and make it a good experience for the patient and then work with MFM to try and bring my recommendations back so the patient's aware of them, FEM team is aware of them, and it should be the same way. You know, if I have a patient with a bleeding disorder who then becomes pregnant, I want to have a specialist that I can refer them to and say, this person will take great care of you during your pregnancy. So it's really kind of just opening that discussion and kind of knowing the go-to people at your center and beyond that take this specific interest in women's health. That's awesome. And are you setting up like group meetings or how do you make sure that everyone, I mean, I know it sounds like there's really close talk, but how are you making sure that everyone's on the same page? Yeah, exactly. So I'm actually starting from scratch here to build a center. So I'm starting by having individual meetings with people in all these different specialty areas and building on that, trying to enact some type of protocol. You know, I'm a big fan of the checklist and the protocols, you know, not as a way to take care of patients, but as a way to make sure that nothing's slipping through the cracks. So if there's a protocol where by so many weeks, you know, OB team should ask a patient who's pregnant, do you have any personal or family history of a clotting or bleeding disorder? And if so, have them come to see us in hematology, make sure that there's a way to get that patient in to see us in a timely fashion and, you know, perhaps come up with an individualized 
plan that can be placed in the patient's chart and then sent to all of the members of the care team so that the patient can take ownership of that and the other members of the care team can communicate. I think checklists and documentation is always helpful for communication. So if the patient's in one medical system, you know, and then needs to go to another, there's something documented, the patient knows kind of what's going on and who their providers are. So I think it's opening that conversation and then having a way to standardize it across specialties and centers. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really amazing all that you're doing for our female patients and just creating this center is bringing so much awareness to the important and different needs of these patients. It's definitely something that I've noticed, and I think it's so cool that you're doing this. I know in addition to kind of starting this center, you also have a lot of leadership roles, both in ASH and AMWA, the American Medical Women's Association. I was wondering if you could just talk to us about those roles and kind of how you became involved in them and what you're doing in those different places. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the nearest and nearest to my heart is, of course, the Women in Hematology Working Group at ASH. So that was actually an initiative that I helped to start. I have obviously longstanding interest in women's health from the patient perspective, but I offer equity from the physician perspective. And I've been a longstanding advocate for women in medicine. And so trying to fuse those two together and say, hey, there's a lot of us who are, you know, women physicians in hematology. Let's take a look at the issue that affect us specifically and have a working group to address that and improve redevelopment and leadership. So I actually petitioned ASH to have such a working group and that was maybe three, four years back and was lucky to have that approved. The group has grown in number. We actually, as you know, recently were able to add a couple of fantastic trainees. So really kind of across the spectrum from early career to late career, our members are really committed and we always have a fantastic discussion as you saw on the call the other day. So I'm really excited about what we're doing for women's career development and hematology with that group. And then just a brief word on another couple groups I'm in. So the Medical Educators Institute, I've always had an interest in education and was really excited when I saw that ASH was starting this training program for people who are interested in medical education as a research and career field. Beyond kind of the teaching aspect of education, there is a scholarly aspect of it. There is a way to build one's career in that area. And so I was actually a participant in the first class of the first cohort of the MEI and got a lot of fantastic teaching and contacts and mentors from that and was lucky to be asked to serve as a faculty member for the past couple of years. And we're doing great work, you know, COVID aside, which has been obviously a bit of a wrench because we used to meet in person for several days and do an intense kind of training program. But I think there's some good things that have come out of it. We now meet kind of longitudinally across the course of a year and are really able to see people's education projects as they evolve and mature. So I think, you know, Ash has done a great job responding to the pandemic and keeping their initiatives like the MEI up and running. And then with AMWA, that's another opportunity for me to advocate for both women physicians and women patients. We have a lot of working groups and committees there. I'm on, you know, fertility committee, where we're trying to raise awareness of infertility in physicians for our female trainees. I'm on advocacy committee, a number of other committees. And we're really just, you know, across the board, an inspiring group of physicians at all levels of training that are working you know, to improve advocacy for female patients and for women in medicine. 
That's amazing. And I think you touched on a lot of areas of where people can get involved as well and where trainees and early career. And I think we really want, like you said, that whole spectrum. And so through the women in hematology, you know, a lot of our various efforts, could you share some of the things from the women in hematology group that are kind of in the pipeline so that if people want to be involved, they know kind of what's coming up? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really excited about one of our big efforts, which is a mentorship effort. So we know that some trainees have limited opportunities to access mentors, whether it be at their own institution or within the specialty that they're looking to go into. So we're trying to create a broader panel of women hematologists, especially at the senior career level, who are willing to serve as mentors for one or a small group of mentees. And mentees can be trainees or kind of junior career women in hematology. And we're looking to find mentors that are focused in specific areas, such as grant writing or CV preparation, but also mentors such as myself, who are better with things like career development, advocating for yourself as a woman, work-life balance. So a variety of areas where we can each use our talents best to serve as mentors. So I'm really excited. We're planning to start looking for mentors soon and perhaps do kind of small mentorship groups rather than one-on-one mentoring to make sure to optimize access for everyone. So super excited about that. And we're also trying to put together a panel discussion for women in hematology for Women's History Month. Uh, so later in March, we're hoping to do kind of a panel discussion moderated by myself and Dr. Dunn, so the two co-chairs of our Women in Hematology group, discussing you know, some of the challenges that women face as physicians, particularly in hematology. I think we're going to start you know, maybe with a couple women who are in academic hematology and hope later in the year to also do more discussions with people in different areas such as private practice, industry, government work, and advocacy. That's amazing. Those are such exciting things. And I know the trainees will be super excited to hear about all of these things in the pipeline. So I'm also very grateful for all of your help in these initiatives. One other thing that you mentioned throughout all that you do and including through AMWA is kind of your dedication to infertility issues in female physicians. And I think, you know, your article in the New York Times and other articles that you've written about infertility difficulties in female physicians are just so, so important. And I really am grateful that you have brought this to both national and international attention because I think it's something that really hasn't been talked about for a long time. And so I wanted to hear what takeaways we could learn from the articles and also where we should go from here and how we can kind of improve upon this known experience that so many female physicians have. Absolutely. So I'm really glad you asked about that because for me, you know, as a trainee medical student, resident fellow, even junior faculty, I had never really stopped to think about what are the issues that may be facing me in terms of fertility through this long period of training and early career building. And it's not something that's really taught about at any level of training or really discussed at all. But then when I suffered from infertility myself and ultimately went through several years of treatments, in IVF, I realized and started to look out there and found that actually one in four female physicians will struggle with infertility to some degree, which is about double the general population of one in eight women. And not surprising, given the length of our training and the intensity of what we do leading to stress and working on hours, you know, on top of starting families at older age for many women. So 
then I started reaching out to colleagues and friends and found just how common this is, but really not discussed at all. There's some degree of shame. There's some degree of keeping you know, things personal and not feeling able to share that. And so I really want to break down those barriers. You know, number one, make people feel comfortable sharing their journeys, but also try to make that journey easier. So we need to start talking about this when people are medical students and residents, you know, talking about options like egg freezing or embryo freezing, if that's something somebody's interested in. If not, that's absolutely fine. I would never say, you know, you should or you have to go out and do this, but just to make people aware of what the statistics are and what the risks are and what can potentially be done about it. So something I'm really passionate about and also, you know, have to state the importance of leaders being aware of this as an issue as well. It's fine and good to tell women it's on you. You need to go out there now and freeze your eggs. But if you don't have a training program director or overseers or chairs, if you're a junior faculty, you really understand the risks and what the process involves, it's going to be a very difficult conversation or conversations. And so I really think we need to raise awareness for everybody and have leaders be the ones who are spearheading the issues to say, let's support our women physicians through this process. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, recently was really the first time through many of your articles and then the article about female surgeons and their struggles with infertility. Those are kind of the first times that I heard about it as a fellow. And I totally agree that earlier is better. And then also working with people who make the policies and insurance companies, because I know it costs a lot as well. And so it's fine to say, go and do this if you are interested and we know training is long, but if people can't afford it or it's not a streamlined process, then it really doesn't matter. And so I think, you know, you and other colleagues have spoken about that in your articles. And I wonder, moving forward, in addition to bringing awareness, are there specific things that you think as we're going through training and then ultimately faculty that we can do to continue to push this issue? Absolutely. I think there really needs to be transparency about these policies, you know, what's covered, what insurance does a given training program or hospital offer and how much of fertility care does that cover? And it really needs to be something that is discussed and presented up front. So I think there's a big movement now for programs to actually present their parental leave policies, you know, even up at the time of the interview, so people can make an informed decision about how supportive that program is. And I really think it needs to be across the board, kind of not just parental leave, but also fertility support and childcare and lactation policies and really everything related to family building from the very beginning, starting with fertility, really needs to be transparent. And so we're doing a number of initiatives to try to kind of suss out what is each hospital and training program's policy, how well does it cover all these different areas, and can we work with leaders and hospital systems to try to improve the transparency and then improve the policies themselves. Amazing. And for trainees that are interested in this area, what would you recommend in terms of getting involved? Yeah, so there's definitely the AMWA Infertility Task Force. So anybody can join AMWA. It is the American Medical Women's Association, but anybody can join, whether male, female, or other. So we're happy to have more members. There's a lot of great initiatives. We crosstalk a lot of the AMWA policy and advocacy committees. There's a lot of programmatic work that we're doing in terms of a physician fertility summit and other kind of training programs. And so, you know, we'd love to have people get involved as much as possible. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And I think you mentioned, and it's so important that, you know, everyone is on board regardless of gender and making sure that we're all working on this together, because I think it can sometimes feel hard to talk about these things with other colleagues who may not go through it or have not gone through it. And I feel like both through these different task forces that you're mentioning and through articles and discussions and very frank discussions, you know, this has become an issue that's moved to the forefront, which we really appreciate all you've done for the cause. Absolutely. It's just such an important issue. So I'm honored to be able to speak to it. Awesome. Are there any other things that you wanted to mention during this podcast for either women in hematology or everyone interested in the field moving forward? Yeah, I think you covered a lot of fantastic ground. The one other thing I would say, you know, on the topic of work-life balance and burnout is we're all trying to do so much and we all fight this imposter syndrome every day of I can't give up X, Y, or Z because it's not going to be good for my career and I'm going to look poorly to my colleagues or my supervisors. And I want to tell people that number one, it's absolutely fine to choose an area of focus and not feel the pressure to do everything else. You know, for example, I am not a person who writes a lot of big grants. I am never going to go out there and get that R01 funding for the type of research and clinical development work that I do. And that's okay. I've made my peace with that. And I still feel, you know, confident that what I'm doing is helping patients and helping my fellow women in medicine. So it's okay to choose something that's not kind of the classic or typical path. And the other thing is paths aren't always, you know, a straight shot or a straight ladder up. There's going to be twists and turns along the way. There's going to be periods such as you're going through fertility treatments or after the birth of a child for the first couple of years when career seems to be taking a backseat or seems to be moving more slowly than usual, but that's not the end of the story. There will also be periods when you focus on your career and things pick up and you're doing a million projects at once and you're really happy with that. Yeah, so I would say expect ebbs and flows along the way. It's not always, you know, one kind of straight shot where you have to be 100% on career, 100% on family or other extra career focuses at one time. It's going to change, you know, in relative percentages across time. Yeah, I think that's such good advice. I often feel like when I look at these very prominent people in medicine that they had this like straight shot upwards with no changes. But then, you know, I think the ebbs and the flows is such a good way of putting it in and maybe priorities will shift at different times. And you mentioned burnout, which I think a lot of people have been always struggling with, but additionally struggling with during the pandemic. Are there things that, you know, since you are an expert in kind of this work-life balance and burnout, are there things that you do either on a daily basis or have done over the past couple of years that you could tell us about so that we can continue to combat any type of burnout or the difficulties of medicine at this time? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question because a lot of my feeling about it is that we tell people too much you should be doing X, Y, or Z, you know, go work out, go read a book and all that takes time, right? So it's not really a systematic fix. But that said, you know, for myself, I found that defining very specifically where the parameters that I'm going to say no has been very helpful. You know, there's a lot of committees out there. There's always going to be another meeting. After having my son, I actually made the decision that I am not going to do any nighttime meetings after 5 or 6 p.m. unless it's something that's so important. I think it has the potential to really make 
my career, you know, in a huge way. But other than that, I've learned to politely say, I'm really sorry, but I'm choosing not to do evening meetings. And has that need meant I've had to come off of a couple of committees? Yes. But do I regret it? No. So I think, you know, having those boundaries and being confident about the fact that you're doing the right thing for yourself and your personal peace of mind has been really helpful for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right that everyone kind of copes differently, but I love hearing different things that people have done in order to kind of block time off at different points. And so that's, that's really great to hear what you've done. And final question is any advice that you have for future hematologists, trainees, early junior faculty that you want us to know about? Yeah, there's so many things that we could say here. I think mentors can't underestimate the importance of having mentors. And I always advise people to have at least two or three different mentors. No one mentor is going to do everything or advise you on everything. I mean, unless you have, you know, maybe some amazing mentor, in which case we send them my way. But in general, I think it's great to have a clinical mentor, somebody you can go to for patient-related questions. He's an expert in their niche area have a research mentor, research is a large portion of your career, and then have just kind of a personal work-life integration, burnout prevention. I can talk through, you know, the difficult parts in my personal life type of mentor as well. That may be somebody even in a different field than you, but just somebody that you respect for the way that they're kind of conducting their life and their work-life balance. So I think having those different mentors and setting regular meetings and saying, I'm going to check in with this person every three months or six months and taking the initiative to do that is really, really helpful. Absolutely. And and hopefully our women in hematology mentorship program can kind of act as that. And I think you mentioned saying no, and I often go to mentors or peer mentors when I'm trying to decide if I should say yes or no to this. And I think that that's another really helpful thing because you're right. You can't say yes to everything, even though I feel like we often want to. And so hopefully this mentorship program will also allow that pathway as well. So absolutely. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Marshall, for being here with us. And we are so grateful for all of your guidance and advice. And if anyone wants to get involved in the efforts that we talked about, you can reach out to the Ash Training Council and we're happy to put you in touch with Dr. Marshall as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much.